Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. It's a long one. <laughs> it's a long podcast. Um, it's been ages since we've done a uh, Q&A one. Uh, so I thought, you know, and I get requests for them all the time. People people like these these ones. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get one done. I put out requests for topics and questions via Facebook, uh, Twitter and the newsletter list. Uh, and we got loads in, particularly via the newsletter list. You know, there was just hundreds uh, came back, which is really good, you know. Um, what I did was I printed them all off, uh, worked my way through them. When we got to kind of about the 90-minute mark, I just kind of pulled the plug because, you know, it, it's a, a long podcast is a good thing, an overly long podcast is not, and I was kind of running short on time. So if we didn't get to your question, then I'm, I'm really sorry about that. But I'm nevertheless, I'm very grateful to everyone who... Uh, did submit them. I'll keep them all on file because it gives me ideas and inspirations for future episodes as well. So uh, thank you for your, um, your contribution. Uh, because it is a long one, uh, what I decided to do, rather than just you have you know 90 minutes of me talking, and I decided I would break it up every 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, I could have just done that with uh, music, but I decided I was going to do some fake sponsorship announcements instead. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, these amused me. <laughs> I decided I was going to do some fake sponsor announcements. Uh, I wrote four or five of them, uh, recorded them, listened to them, and they made me laugh. So I've included them in the podcast. Whether they make you laugh or not remains to be seen, but I enjoyed them. And they'll, they'll be use, useful markers in the audio as well, so you can, if you don't listen to it all in one go, you know where you've, you've kind of got up to. Um, also, again, this time of year, I know a lot of you, it's summer, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, so a lot of you will be going on holiday. Um, so hopefully the longer podcast will, you know, help kill downtime at airports or pass the time on flights or road trips or whatever. So you know, I hope this uh, podcast is a, a useful part of your, uh, your holidays. Uh, one final thing just to mention is obviously no travelling for me this time of year. I generally try and take uh, most of August off and catch up on uh, other things. Um, but uh, it starts again in uh, last weekend of the, the month. I'm in Finland. But before the year's out, I'm in the USA. I'm in Canada, Denmark, uh, Germany again, uh, all over kind of, you know, England, Scotland and Wales. So and a few other places too. So if you go to the seminar pa uh, seminar dates page of ianabernethy.com, uh, you can see all the upcoming seminars there. And the best thing to do to make sure that you you know you, you get all the information and you never miss out is to subscribe to the newsletters. Um, Facebook, I know a lot of you follow on the Facebook page. Unfortunately, the way Facebook works is that unless you pay Facebook additional money, they don't guarantee that everything you put out finds its way into everyone who's like your page's news feeds. It's just the, you know, part of their business model. So, um, the, there may well be a seminar in your area that I've put out, but you'll miss it if you, if you're, um, or solely keep on top of things via Facebook. So if you subscribe to the newsletters, we typically send one out about once every six weeks, so it's it's not that often. But you'll get all the in-depth stuff, and you'll get to know about all the seminars that are happening uh, over the next few months and, and everything like that. So, Okay, so I'll cut this introduction short. I'll stop now, because like I say, it is a long one, but hopefully you'll enjoy all the things we've got to discuss. And, uh, okay, let's get going. Let's answer some of your uh, questions. OK, 
Okay, so let's get to it. Okay, question number one we got was from Stuart Gray. He said, if kata is a whole fighting system, well, why learn more than one? So um, I do believe that, that each kata is representative of a complete fighting system. It records techniques which express the essence of it. So as an analogy for that, I always think, if you think of like... Um, uh, an oak tree being representative of a fighting system. You know, it's big and it's got all these branches and sub-branches and things. But if if I want an oak tree, I can't dig one up and carry it. It's too big and cumbersome. So what I do is I get an acorn. All right, I, I take the seed of it and then I nurture that seed. That that seed, that acorn contains the essence of the oak tree. And if I nurture it, it will will, will grow into an oak tree. So it's the same with kata. Fighting systems produce kata. They don't record the whole of the system, but they record techniques which express the essence of it. And just as I would plant the oak tree, uh, the acorn to grow an oak tree, I will nurture the kata, I will study the kata, and that will allow the combative system to kind of, you know, grow. So, I mean, do you need to learn more than one? You don't, you don't need to learn more than one. Um, and that's similar to um, Neil Kenyon asked a very similar question as well. Um, he said, you know, why, why did the, the people of the past, why did they learn more than one as well if um, if each one's a complete system? So my, my, my response to that is, and the way that, that I, I certainly do it, uh, my main cutters are the Pinans and Nahanchi, what most would know as Nahanchi Shodan. They're the core of what I do. Now, I, I do know others, and uh, I study others, but generally what I'm using those other ones for is alternate expressions of common combative principles that help inform uh, the study of my core kata. So th that's why I would learn more than one, and I would suggest that's why the old masters may have learnt more than one as well. I mean, back in the day, they stopped at about two or three. You know, generally, the, you know, Funakoshi said this in Karate Do, My Way of Life. He said, in my day, we studied narrow and deep, whereas today they study uh, broad and shallow. Um, so... <laughs> we do things a little bit differently today. So why we may learn... So we'll have one kind of core, maybe two core katas that we study in depth. We can study the bunkai of other forms to help inform um, what we do. And the other reason that we we'll, may know, as opposed to study some other forms, is so we don't lose them. So w it would be a shame if, with us, uh, kata started to die out. If a kata has survived a few hundred years, we really want to be able to pass that on. So sometimes we're learning things uh, in depth to study them. Other times we're learning it more casually to help inform the core study. And then other times we're just simply learning it in a very surface way. You know, we can walk through the motions of it in order to ensure we've recorded that kata for subsequent generations. Now, th this kind of relates to, um, we've got a good question from Harold, uh, Harold uh, Wisner, where he was saying that if, you know, karate is art and art is self-expression, how important is self-expression in one's own approach to combat in modern times? You know, how do we take what works for the individual and leave behind what doesn't? And he also asked, you know, is there a case for making uh, a kata, an individual kata, based on the techniques that we like? Now, so where the, there is a, there is a view sometimes that karate tries to like almost like cookie cutter karate where it tries to make everyone the same, uh, and that's just not not how it should be. It's not how it was intended to be. Uh, and one example of that is we have um, Anko Itosu, the creator of the Pinan Katas, we have his 10 precepts. And if it's a 6th or 7th precept, I can't remember, I think it's a 6th. But one of the lines there, he says, um, uh, 
learn the explanations of every movement and then decide how and when you would use them when needed. So what we've got him saying there is learn the explanations of every kata. Okay, so there's no element of choice there. He's telling you learn what every move does. He's then saying, and then decide. So there's an element of individual choice to decide what works for you as an individual. So what will happen is, I, I let's say I learn a, a kata that's got 100 techniques in it for the sake of ease of maths, right? Uh, and I um, like those 100. Well, maybe I learn two katas, okay? I learn two katas with 100 techniques in them. Um, so 15 each. And then, and then from there I go, okay, from those 100 techniques, I have a smaller number that work very well for me as an individual based on my strengths and weaknesses, my physical build. So I go, right, of those 100, there's 10. There's 10 that really work well for me. Now, if I was to go, right, I'm just going to do those 10, the, the 10 that work best for me, and I'm going to create a cutter just for those 10. So I have an individual Ian Abernethy cutter just on the 10 that suit me as an individual. That's okay for me, but it's not good for karate because it means that if I go to teach someone, well, I've, I haven't been practicing 90 of those techniques. I've let them fall into disuse. What I've got is 10 techniques that work well for me. So I go to a student, here's 10 techniques that work well for me. Now, you know, I, I'm short, dumpy, squatty build, you know, so certain techniques that work well for me won't work well for others. So let's say I get a student who's taller than I am, thinner than I am, and not as strong as I am. And he says, well, do you know what? Of those 10 that work well for you, three of them work well for me. So what he then does is he goes on and teaches his students, and he goes, right, I've got three techniques. I've got three techniques I want to show you. And let's say one of those students goes, well, only one of those techniques works well for me. So you've now reduced, you know, 100 down to one. Now that student then gets a student of his own and says, I've got one technique I want to show you. And the student goes, I don't like it. So in three or four generations, we've killed karate off. Now the way it should work, I think, is I go, okay, here's my 100. And of those 100, they're the 10 that I like. But I pass on the full 100. So, you know, I won't be exceptional at all of them. I'll just be exceptional at the 10 that works for me. But I understand and I'm competent with the 90, you know, the remaining 90 as well. So I learn 100, learn the explanations of all movements, as Itosu said. And then I've got the 10 that work for me. And I pass on the 100 to my students. And they go, right, thanks for those 100, Ian. These 10 work well for me, which may not be the same 10 as I showed them. And then we keep doing that so we don't lose any information but the individual's free to decide how they p apply that information. So that's kind of how I would do it. And, and I'm not, for me, I, I, it would work well as an individual if I just went, I'm studying, I'm creating a new form just for me. But if I, if I were to do that, again, I, I am, I'm killing karate off. I'm doing the people who came before me a disservice because I'm not allowing their information to continue. And I'm doing the people that come after me a disservice as well. Now, obviously, in my, you know, my, my live drilling and stuff, I'll emphasize um, techniques that work well for me. But it doesn't mean I'll forget the others. And as we all know, there's sometimes you, you learn a technique and you think, oh, that doesn't work well for me. You stick with it and then you go, actually, this works really well for me. So there's, you know, an element that way as well to keep everything, um, keep everything running as well. So a related question we've got is from John Roberts. He said that he's picked up two versions of Basai Dai due to moving dojo. And he asks, is there any benefit to continue practicing both? Or would focusing on the current version and learning the principles and concepts be better? 
Uh, and we've got a similar question as well from uh, David Fennell, who says, uh, he says, could you give an overview of the different styles of karate and discuss these differences uh, and how they're reflected in kata bunkai uh, when different styles perform the same kata? So I'll, I'll kind of, hopefully this will kind of touch on both of those questions. So um, the analogy I use at the seminars is if I got a piece of paper, uh, let's say it's a brown piece of paper, piece of wrapping paper, and with a black marker pen, I write a poem down on it. Now, then what you do is you go to your computer and you print off the same poem on a brilliant, shiny, white piece of paper. And then you've got my brown crumpled one with handwritten black, and then you've got your beautifully printed white one. And we put them at the other end of the room. And then we say to someone, okay, look at those two pieces of paper. Are they the same? So at first glance, people will go, no, they're not the same. But if they went to it and read what was written on that paper, you know, if we've written the same poem on that piece of paper, they'd go, oh no, actually on closer inspection it is the same. It, it, it's recorded in a different medium, but it's the same. So I, I tend to view this with traditional versions of the kata. You know, we can leave aside ones that have backflips and somersaults in, you know, but I mean, traditional versions of the form are generally just alternate expressions of common principles. Um, once we get into the applications, I see very little difference between how Shota can apply it, Godru apply it, uh, Wadaru, Shitoru, Shukakai, Kyokushin, because what works, works. They'll have different uh, versions of the kata, but in essence, that's like like someone's handwriting. It doesn't it doesn't change the language that's been used. It doesn't change what's been written down. It's it's just it's very much surface stuff, I think. Um, so to, back to John's question, he said, you know, would he be better studying both? Uh, if it was me, uh, what I would do is I would I would focus on one, and I would say, okay, this is the one that I'm I'm going to make sure that I really get down. But I would I would value having learnt the other one, because uh, as we discussed earlier, knowing these other cutters allows you to see the uh, common principles. That, that, that are in the, the alternate version of the form. And, and if it, I've used the an elef, elephant analogy several times, you know, that if blind men go to and experience an elephant for the first time, and this is a little parable, so the first guy touches its trunk and says elephants are like snakes. The next guy grabs its tail and says elephants are like a frayed piece of rope. The next guy grabs its leg and goes elephants are like tree trunks. And the next guy touches its flank and goes elephant, elephants are like walls. And the final guy goes all the way around the elephant and goes, okay, I get it. Elephants are like elephants. So what I find that by looking at alternate versions of the kata, what you're doing is you're seeing the kata that you know from a slightly different angle. And you can gain greater understanding through doing that. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, to learn Basai, you need to be an expert in every single variation of it. It just it doesn't work that way. You're better concentrating on one for the point of view of kind of, developing that mind-body link and that precision in movement. But having an understanding of the others or an appreciation of the others can help under you understand uh, the common core combative principles uh, from which all these variations of the kata are descended. So um, if it was me, um, I would focus... Like, like I do, for example, I know several different versions of the Pinans or the Hians. I know several different versions of Basai. I know several different versions of Nijishio and, and others. But what, what, what I tend to do is I go... Or Gion or whatever katas you want to pick. But I, I have ones that I practice personally. And these other ones, because I know of them, it helps inform my understanding of the ones that I practice. So I always say this to people. You don't need to be a black belt in every version of every kata, you know, or every style. 
know, if you're a Shotokan guy, look at how other styles do the cutter on YouTube, and, and it will help you understand your, your, own, your own forms. This podcast brought to you by Accidental Groin Kicks. Accidental Groin Kicks, the unintentional way to make sparring both painful and funny. Okay, so the next uh, question's uh, from Garth Gilmer in um, Northern Ireland. And he said, uh, what elements of karate practice will be gone or radically changed in 50 years and which will remain the same? So, yeah, I think kata will remain pretty much the same um, because it has done up to this point. Uh, in terms of things that I think will be gone or radically changed, uh, I think one-step sparring will go. Uh, I've always been of the view that that's an historical aberration. It's it's something that appeared when karate kind of hit the universities in Japan and it became karate versus karate and these bizarre reinterpretations of movements. I've always said that one-step sparring is a dead end. It doesn't develop skill for fighting. It doesn't develop skill for self-defense. Uh, people make the argument, you know, that it develops, you know, like um, timing and, and things like this, but it doesn't. It develops an incorrect timing. It develops an incorrect distancing. So I, I think uh, once the sparring will go, I can see that being replaced by more uh, functional bunkai-based and close-range drills. Uh, I think one other thing that will possibly change, if we're talking 50 years, is I think styles will go. So there's a controversial one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the grounds again, see that if you think Funakoshi said that all karate was one, and Ken Wamabuni said there are no styles of karate, only varying interpretations of its principles. So the idea of styles is pretty new as well, you know. Um, and what I see more and more is that obviously people are. Um, uh, and to give an example, see if Funakoshi talks about I know how Itosu and Azato would send him off to learn the expertise of other masters, you see. Now, th there was a time where that be that was, although that was done by Funakoshi and co, that was regarded as blasphemy. You know, like, if you were a Wado guy, you don't learn a technique from another art and make it part of what you do, or you don't train with the Shotokan guys, you just don't do it, you know. Uh, and, and that, thankfully, has kind of died off. So, I train alongside people that have, you know, got you know, Kyokushin, Shitoryu, Shukakai, Goju backgrounds, and once we all start talking applications, it's it's pretty much the same thing. So I, I think we'll go back to what Funakoshi wanted, this idea of all karate being one, because, I mean, already I don't know what style I am, I haven't a clue. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know it's 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 karate as we do it, you know, um, but I I I wouldn't have I haven't got a label for it. It's just, I I I don't know, you know, I don't know what style it is because it's been influenced by teachers of lots of differing systems, and I think as soon as you label something, you you, you solidify it, you stop it from moving forward. So I can see styles being one that will eventually fade away as well as we get back to you know it's just karate. The other one that I think will be radically changed in 50 years, uh, I think the competition format will be. You know, I'm not big into karate competition, and it's not something we really talk here, you know, but, um, but I think more and more people uh, are interested in a, a holistic version of the art. That's more in keeping with the traditional version of karate. Uh, and also with the popularity of things like like MMA, people like the idea of doing not just kicking and punching, but also doing some grappling and and, and everything else. So people like this idea of holistic training, uh, and the current competition format doesn't give that. Now, when I see stuff like the kudo format, that's the one that I think will 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 gather uh, mainstream uh, appeal. I think. 
So um, there's some initial ones, you know, that um, I think, you know, cat will largely remain the same. Um, I think one steps will go, styles will probably go in, in due course, or at least become very diluted, you know, people won't have these hard and fast demarcations anymore. Um, and I thought also that the competition format will change quite um, quite a bit. And so a related question as well is, uh, Ali Whittock in Scotland, he says, uh, what changes specific to karate have you witnessed in the last 10 years, good and bad? Furthermore, what changes would you like to see over the next 10 years? So, well, I see, I think of when I wrote the, um, my first book, the Karate's Grappling Methods book, I wrote that in, um, 2000. And, uh, at that time, um, there wasn't a massive amount of people suggesting that there was, uh, you know, locking and throwing in karate. I mean, I wasn't a lone voice or anything like that. It was plenty like me, but it, it wasn't anywhere near as mainstream as it is now. Uh, most, uh, dojos, well, there's certainly a growing number anyway. In certain, certain most areas, you'll find ones where they acknowledge that el element's there. Uh, whereas bunkai was a fringe thing that would either be practiced badly or not practiced at all. It, it, more and more people are practicing it as like the fundamental essence of what they do. So I think one of the positives I've seen is almost like this step backwards to go forwards. We're looking at the older version to make what we do more and more relevant um, today. Um, related to what I was just saying about Garth's question as well, I think we've seen the demarcation of style start to strongly erode. And people have realised that good stuff is good stuff. And also, I mean, it's not just you know within the styles of karate. You see karate guys quite happily training with other people in other systems and, and cross-training generally throughout all the martial arts is now regarded as being a more positive thing. I still think you need your base. You know, you, you don't want to be kind of six months of everything doesn't make you a good martial artist. But if you've got a core, being able to see what other arts are doing and, and how they're training it and being able to utilise that, I think people are a lot more um, open to that. In, in terms of changes that I'd, uh, I'd like to see, I'd like to see it progress along those lines because I think that's what will um, be best for karate. I, I think, uh, and I'd also like, and which we are seeing, the other one is people are far more informed and critical than they were. Um, back, you know, maybe not 10 years ago, but certainly 20 years ago, pre-internet days, you had no idea if what you were being taught was good or bad, because Sensei said, and that was it, that was your only source of information. Sensei, maybe an occasional library book, maybe a martial arts magazine if you could find it. Right now, people can very quickly tap into Google and YouTube and they can see the alternative. So I think students are far more educated. They, they come to the martial arts knowing what they want from them. And not always, but again, uh, generally. And, and that makes people more discriminating. And I'd like to see that continue. So, um, so we get away from this thing of, uh, appeals to authority where somebody at the top of a system ever says, this is the way it is and everyone goes fine. I think it's far more healthy if you've got uh, students who actively think critically. Because what's good will remain good. You know, if people think about good stuff critically, they'll go, yeah, I've thought about it, it's good. It adds value to it. The only stuff that ever suffers from the application of logic and critical thinking is the bad stuff. So I'd like to see uh, see more of that um, continue as, as well. So um, I hope that was all right for you there. Um, I've got a couple of related ones as well here from uh, Mattia uh, Biospear, I hope I pronounced the surname right there, where he's asked about um, uh, stances and whether the heels uh, should be on and off the ground, hand positions to Hikate, etc. And there's a one from uh, Philip Surkov in uh, Germany, where he's saying about the uh, the most effective way to transfer energy 
from a, a punch into the target. And he makes a point about most keeping the, the, the heel down and leaving the arm stuck out. And would it be better if, you know, the heel was off and we snapped it and that kind of stuff. So the one for me on the, if we look at the, the stances first, okay? So if we look at Matthias' question about, um, the, the, the stances. My favorite line for that is Genwa Nakasone's in Karate Do, um, Taikan, where he said, uh, karate has many stances. It also has none. If you want a more detailed look of that, you can look at the My Stance on Stances podcast that we did a few years ago. So what stances are, and stances is a bad word in English because it instantly inf- gives images of something, mental images of things fixed. But they are positions, uh, snapshots in time that beginning students will use in order to learn how to transfer their body weight. Uh, when the students get better, those stances will still be there, but they won't fixate on them they'll just move they'll move through them so if you were to you know videotape it you'd be able to get stills and you'd see the stances were there but they're not static in the way that would be uh, for beginners and that's reflected by Funakoshi's one of his 20 precepts is uh, beginners will use stances advanced students will use natural postures so it should all be dynamic it should all all be with movement um, the, the stances are just there for beginners to teach them how to use body weight correctly. They're still present in advanced karate, but they've just become far more fluid. And if you've been to the seminars, you'll remember the golf swing kata, which I obviously can't <laughs> can't demonstrate while talking at this microphone. But I use the point that if you look at a golf swing, you've got three main postures, you know, the backswing, the contact, and the follow-through. And a, a golfing coach may well say, look, this is where you want to be when you pull the club back. This is where you want to be at the point of impact. This is where you want to be when you followed through. However, you don't hit a ball just by going, you know, you know one, two, three, tick, 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 to these three postures. You flow through them all. And that's the, the the same. So in terms of heel on or heel off, this is one of these ones where I've just got to say it depends. Right, uh, taking the uh, the heel off uh, is a good idea to allow uh, rotation. It allow it, it, if the heel's flat, it can allow the, it, it can tether the hip and it can stop the hip from from moving forwards fully, which will in turn reduce power. However, having the heel off can reduce uh, result in lack of stability which you may need if you're grappling with the partner when you're hitting them, if you've got hold of them. So when it comes to heel up or heel down, I, I, you can't, for me, I can't give a universal, it's always better to do one or it's always better to do the other because it just depends, right? So if there's no, in terms of pure power, heel off, take the heel off, drive in. But if you need stability, having that heel down can be advantageous, which is why we often see heel down in kata because, you know, we're pulling and pushing at the same, um, the same time. Uh, Philip uh, also asked the idea about when we're striking, is it better to drive the arm through or snap it off? Now, now for me, what I generally say is driving through the target is better. You know, the time on target to allow the force to fully transfer. And then when it has transferred, then you obviously remove it quickly and get it doing something or get the other hand active. Um, but we don't want to snap it off before the force has finished transferring, otherwise it weakens the shot. Uh, now, if you look at kata, we see very few techniques that snap. You know, the, the, like big driving shots, um, which again, I think that idea, it, it's a good practice. It, it's that idea of driving through the target until the energy is spent. However, once it is spent, you don't want to stand there with your hands still. It goes back to Stance's idea. It's constantly being um, being fluid. And, and, and that's how we'll get the, um, the bigger impact. Because sometimes when the arm is snapped back, again, it's before the weight's fully gone through. 
No, no if, if I was being very cautious, so you think fighting now, we're not talking about self-defense, like fighting, like, like a boxing match or a karate tournament or something like that, then I may well snap my arm away. Because what I want to do is I want to make sure that while that arm's extended, you know, I, I, I can't use that arm to block or to cover. So I want to get my technique in and I want to get it back. So I'm kind of back in a good, solid defensive position. Self-defense wise, th that, that's no good because you need it finished. You need it finished and you need it finished quick. You can't muck about with that. So we'll open up more and we'll com commit more because the best way to ensure our safety is unconsciousness or, or, or disorientation. So you may snap. If you're being um, kind of like defensive or using ones to set people up or in gameplay fighting skills. But for self-defense wise, I wouldn't snap. But that doesn't mean I throw my arm out and leave it stuck out. Uh, what will happen is I'll drive through the target and the instant all that energy is spent, then I will remove it and move the next one on. And for the external observer, they may not be able to tell much of a difference. You know, in in terms of well, one drove through and one kind of snapped off because um, time-wise there'll only be the smallest of differences, but impact-wise there'll be a, b a big big difference. This podcast brought to you by No Touch Knockouts. No Touch Knockouts, giving fully grown men the chance to pretend to be Gandalf. Okay, so the next two questions are kind of related. We've got uh, Zenshin Wei, at Zenshin Wei, at Twitter, said, why is it that karate is often promoted as for all, but isn't flexible enough to include a growing age uh, population? And on Stacey Stutter, uh, she was asking via Facebook that she said, you know, as we get older, we can get problems with hips and knees, so we may need to modify the kata slightly. And do I think that we're taking anything away from the history and principles of the kata and the bunkai by varying it for the individual um so the answer to stacy's question is no you know i i think that if you do have a a joint problem or a health problem that, that means you need to adapt the cat to your body type that's a good thing uh, it, it's obviously a far better thing than saying no sorry you can't do karate um because the danger is we karate ends up being which is zenshin's way's point as well it being something comes something for uh young fully abled um people you know so people with no kind of aches pains injuries or disabilities and i think that karate should be for everybody but what we need to do is we uh adjust it so that it fits the the individual and and the uh um the age range that they are in now that, that doesn't mean of course that you know all karate is equal because the kind of karate a 70 year old does won't be the kind of karate a 20 year old does they'll be different. And the kind of karate that the 20-year-old does will probably be more pragmatic and practical than the karate the 70-year-age person does. But, you know, that's fine. You know, karate should have everything, something for every age range. So for the kids, it's about the enjoyment, the physical exercise, the discipline, the sense, sense of accomplishment, you know, um, the uh, socialising, all that's good for, for children. That's what their karate should be about. It shouldn't be about self-defence, really, for kids. Aside from, you know, instilling good personal safety habits um when we then kind of move up you know a little bit older kind of like you know teens late teens early 20s they're probably going to focus or want to focus on the proving yourself side of it you know they want to be in cages and in rings and on mats you know fighting and proving themselves and enjoying the physicality of it you know and i completely get that as you get older you might shift to the more kind of self-defense focused stuff you know so um, you're not so worried about proving yourself anymore, but you are worried, you know, about protecting yourself. That's something you want to be able to do. Uh, keeping fit and healthy obviously applies to all age ranges, but you know, the older you get, 
you know, I have this image that when I'm in my 70s, I'll wake up every day and I'll do a few cutter in the morning and it'll get my body moving and it'll remind me of past glories and <laughs> the bad ways in which I used to train when I was younger, but I'll stop doing that. So as an example, when I was in my 20s, I did quite a bit of full contact sparring. I, I don't do that now because it's, it's not good for my, my body as a, a guy in his mid-40s. I still train hard. I still push that anaerobic threshold when I train. Uh, and that's something that I'll probably ease off on the older I get. So I, I think it's a shame sometimes, which is, again, what Stacey and uh, Zenshin Wei are driving at, really. that you know Someone says, oh, I've got a bad knee. I can't fully bend the knee. And they go, oh, well, okay, you can't do karate then that's bad we should find a way okay you've got that injury you know if we can find a way around it that won't affect your health then that's what we should be doing uh, if you're that little bit older you know uh, then we should be including it we should should find ways for which people can 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 train and it should it should have that flexibility and it's probably a shame that it hasn't and that's maybe something that we uh, we need to address uh, so the next question i've got is from uh, colin jolly and he says, uh, do you think kumite should be a big part of karate? Or do you think that fighting stroke self-defense uh, awareness can be learned equally just as well through kata, bunkai, etc.? So now this is, this is one where we've got to define terms. Because um, doing set drills, so solo kata and compliant bunkai drills, is not enough. But kumite, as most people mean it, has no relevance to self-defense. Um, so w when most people think of kumite, what they really mean is competition kumite. So then it means two people fighting in a karate versus karate way uh, at a distance. And that has very little relevance to self-protection. We should have live practice. That live practice should involve things like uh, escaping from multiple opponents. It should include simulated weapons. Um, it should include grabbing and, 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 and gripping, it, yeah, kicking, throwing, punching. It should include groundwork, getting up from the ground, dealing with multiple opponents, protecting, uh, protecting innocence, protecting other people. All of that should be included in live practice. And, uh, and it was. You know, I mean, this is the thing. If you, if you go back and, and look at... Uh, Funakoshi in Karate Do My Way of Life describes fighting his way up from the ground and he describes doing live drills against multiple opponents and saying that there's no better way than this to learn to defend against uh, multiple opponents. So to me, live practice needs to be part of that equation. So for my four stages, it's learn the kata, learn the applications, identify the underlying principles so you can adapt and vary, gain live experience of doing it. So you, you need uh, live drills because... Uh, they're, they're, they're a must but and then what our kata does it helps support that life practice but our bunkai drills as well they help support that life practice and obviously our kata and our bunkai drills inform us of what to do within that life practice as well so that's why i use the term kata based sparring uh, i use that in um early books my bunkai g2 book of 2002 and my um Karate's grappling methods of 2000 so and the reason i use that term was to differentiate kata based sparring from competition-based sparring or normal dojo sparring. So, um, yes, okay, you, you do need kata, you do need bunkai, and you do need live drills as well. And we've, we've done a couple of podcasts on, on kata-based sparring. I think we've done three in total. Uh, one very early one, and then we did uh, two revisited ones. One I think was called uh, kata-based sparring structure, and one was kata-based sparring principles. So, I, you know, I'd encourage people to look at uh, those, um, for, or listen to those, rather, if they want a bit more information. And there's my kata-based sparring DVD shows a lot of the drills on, on, on there as well. Uh, 
just to very quickly, just kind of relate to um, Stacey's question as well, a, a second ago as well. It, it, the, the type of sparring we do, again, needs to be relevant to the individual, though. It, it's no good if we go, right, okay, full contact, full on from day one, because what that does is the people who can deal with that will stay and the people who can't will leave. So we have a, a tough club of very able people, but that's not because what we're teaching is any good. It's because we're excluding those who need our help most. So, to me, the, the sparring drill should be set up in a very gentle, structured way to start with. And once a student's got confidence, then you add in the next level. And when they've got confidence with that, you add in the next level. So, to give some examples, you know, our basic for a uh, white belt to red belt, they have uh, four kinds of sparring. Uh, first one is one person feeds straight shots, the other one parries them. They're not allowed to hit with those straight shots. You're feeding them in to be parried, which gives them confidence to move forwards if they're the puncher. And it allows them to practice blocking without fear of getting hit uh, if they're the defender. Okay, So it's not ideal, but it's the right kind of practice for beginners to do. Uh, we have a drill where they play for grips. So they kind of just play for various gripping skills. You know, you can't do the throws and the locks and everything else within forms unless you've got your gripping skills down. So they, they play for grips with no real objective. There's no winner. There's no loser. No one's going to get thrown or choked or anything like that. They're just playing for grips. And then we have two uh, very basic drills where they assume set dr uh, um, grips and just move around with the partner just to get used to balance. So we start gently and kind of really build things up. So people develop confidence and, and ability. And then uh, the type of sparring we do will be relevant to the student and the relevant to the, um, the level they've, uh, they've reached. Okay, the next one we've got is from uh, 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 Tony Jones, where he's talking about the uh, um, the kake exercises, you know, the kind of like uh, hooking hands stuff. And he says, you know, that he's obviously um, seen them very important in Gojuru. He says, but he's never seen these practices in Shuri or Tamarite traditions in, in Britain, although he can't speak for elsewhere in the world. Uh, he finds these kind of uh, kake drills to be really useful. Um, so he wonders why this aspect is is missing from uh, from other systems. See, and I, I, the funny thing is, I, I know Gojuru guys who don't do that. Um, uh, Chris Wilder is, you know, one for example. Uh, Chris is not um, uh, the biggest of, of fans of it, but I know other people who swear by it. I also I also know some some uh, guys with like Wadaru or or, or uh, backgrounds who've adopted it from Goju or related systems and, and find it to be to be very useful. To me, the bottom line would be we need to be able to control limbs and we need to be able to stick to limbs, to, to be able to redirect limbs so we can, A, shut down strikes and B, so we can open up opportunities for our own strikes. Now, whether we do that through kind of um, uh, kake drills is, is one way. Uh, in, for me, I don't, I don't do them, but we have a whole host of bunkai drills which include that kind of uh, limb control and, and, and redirection. So... It's, the reason you may not see it in some styles is because they've also neglected the bunkai as well. But I, I would suggest that um, you do need to be able to do those limb control drills. How you go about it will be uh, a matter for the wider training methods. You know, so if you if you isolate it and drill as a separate skill, that's one way of doing it. If you integrate it into your sparring drills, that's a way of doing it. Uh, if you integrate it into your uh, bunkai drills, that's a way of doing it too. So um, for my case, I don't really have separate drills solely for that element but we will find it within our sparring drills of the various types and uh, and in our um, bunkai drills uh, as well so um but you know and again so it's up to the individual whether they feel it's uh, worth doing and of course it's how it fits within that wider training uh, matrix as well so so long as at the end of the day we can control limbs that that's you know, we need to be able to do that 
so uh, we've got Nathaniel uh, Senderoff. He asks, um, what role does throwing play in self-defence and what are the major differences between competition throws and those used in self-defence? So I, see, um, I would say that um, grappling generally is a secondary skill set when it comes to the physical side of self-defence. Their main thing is the striking because striking drops people quicker uh, and it, it enables you to create space. And when you've got hold of a single individual, it makes you far less mobile, and that can be very problematic when there's more than one person. So generally speaking, uh, grappling is something we want to avoid. So Funakoshi in Karate Do Kyohan, he talks about uh, you know all the throws and the the locking within karate and how it, it's good to to do that stuff. But he then goes on. He said, uh, never forget that the essence of karate is found in ending this, the fight with a single kick or thrust. Uh, great care must be taken not to be defeated by being overly concerned with applying a throw or a joint punishment hold, you know, so lock. Um, so what he's saying there is, you know, yeah, le- you know, you need the grappling skills. You know, even monkeys can fall out of the trees. You, you need some kind of core grappling skills. Um, you, you may not, you know, you don't, you don't need the skills necessarily needed to you know, out-grapple grapplers for self-defense, but you need some core skills. Um, so as, in terms of throwing as a subsection of that, that's twofold as well. So one is you don't want to grapple, but if you do end up on, on, in a grip, your aim is to break that grip and your aim is to throw strikes from within that grip. If during that, the opponent should find themselves off balance or you can create an opportunity to take them off balance and you can execute a throw, then you would do so. Or you could do so. So it, it's never a, a primary method. It's a supporting method. And it's not something... That, following Funakoshi's advice that we go looking for in the first instance. It's um, that accidental or incidental thing. You know, if it happens to show up, we'll take it. Um, But we don't kind of go looking for it in the first instance. In terms of, like, competition throws and throws used in self-defense, well, any throw that you would intentionally end up on the ground... You, you wouldn't use in self-defense. You, you never take a self-defense situation at the ground. Because if there's anyone else... Well, I mean, one is you can't escape as well, but if there's any chance of anyone else getting involved, you are greatly vulnerable. Uh, and going back to the live sparring thing, that's one of the things that we do in my dojo. You'll have two people sparring on the ground, and you have uh, other people can come to the aid of who, whoever I dictate on the floor. And what you find is as soon as these standing people go to the aid of the people on the floor... The people on the floor lose. It doesn't matter who's the best ground fighter, they lose. So the, the guy on the ground can be totally dominating the fight. I say, okay, standing people go to their assistance, and instantly, even though they've got these clever holds and arm locks and chokes and strangles, they get stomped by everybody else. The, the ground is a bad place, full stop. It's a bad place to be in self-defense. You, so you would never deliberately go there. You, you may end up there and you need skills to deal with it, should you, but you never deliberately go there. So we don't use throws that would force us to go down onto the ground. Um, so I, I categorize them as like fighting throws because we do practice them. and we, you know, So I, I do have throws within my arsenal and we're teaching them a practice, which would class as fighting throws for one-on-one duels and, and uh, which will deliberately end up with both of you on the ground. Um, so for self-defense-based throws, we would try to avoid that. Although... There should be some acknowledgement of the realism is that when you execute a throw, unless your partner or your enemy is disorientated through being struck or um, is caught before they're fully aware of what's happening, there's a good chance they'll gr- they'll grab, they'll try and keep themselves upright, so they'll, they'll hold on to you. 
which means that you can end up falling down with them as well. So one other element of self-defence throws is that we want to practice getting back up from them the instant we hit the floor. Uh, whereas if we're doing fighting throws or competition throws, we may be looking to uh, capitalise on the position we've got and, and get a better hold or, or, or stuff. So I um, hope that answers your question, Nathaniel. This podcast brought to you by Awareness, Escape and De-Escalation. Awareness, Escape and De-Escalation. The thing martial arts instructors talk about for 30 seconds before the fun stuff. Uh, so the next question is from Harold Wisner. He said, um, if you're going to limit yourself to one, two, or maybe three cat at a study, uh, which would they be and why? Which I kind of touched on answering the questions earlier. Uh, one kata would be Nahanshi Shodan, or what I call Nahanshi, what most would know as Nahanshi Shodan. Uh, and the reason for that is I just find it to be such a um, versatile and effective kata. Uh, I also have a... Um, love of that kata because when I, I I popped my knee I dislocated my knee a few years ago so for about a year the only kata I could do uh, was Nahanshi because it's got no pivots in it <laughs> so I, I could kind of you know walk from side to side with it so I always say all the other katas abandoned me when I was injured but Nahanshi never did so uh, but functionally I just believe it's, it's so effective and I, I just love drilling it I love all the various drills we do for that form um, in addition to that, you know, I'd look the pinans. I always class them as, as one because they are intended to be used together as a, a group. Um, they're a great summary of all the karate that went previously. I think they're very logically structured. I think the order of them reflects a good kind of combative order and they're uh, very complete. Uh, if I was to go for a third one, it, I probably Kashanku. Um, again, just because it's it's kind of you know the pinans draw so much from it as well, and um, I like Kashanku Basai as well. I like you know uh, that's another one that uh, that that possibly you know what I mean that I'm, I may substitute in place of Kashanku. But in terms of one or two, definitely Nahanshi in the first instance, the pinans in the uh, second. Uh, next question is from uh, Andy Bailey. He said, uh, is Junzuki slash Oizuki, so that's a lunging punch for those that don't use the Japanese terminology, uh, used on the street? And should we be teaching uh, defences against this technique in Bunkai? Now, now, do people step through and throw punches? Yeah, of course they do. Um, does, will people f perform that lunging punch in the formal way that we see within karate dojos? It's very unlikely. Uh, so when it comes to uh, Bunkai for me, um, no. You know, I don't think we should spend a lot of time defending against Junzuki's Noijo because it's too formal and it goes back to this uh, karate versus karate of the Japanese universities. We need to, you know, accept that the kind of violence that Kata is designed to deal with is civilian self-defense. It's it's close range, it's chaotic, it's, it's messy and it's ugly uh, as opposed to uh, lunging punches from, you know, 10 feet away. Um... So yeah, I, I I would never do that. But generally speaking, as well, my view is that uh, we shouldn't make bunkai too defensive either. So as a general point, bunkai shouldn't always be defending against this, this, and this. Because if you do this thing of well, you go well. If the opponent attacks with A, you respond with X. If he does B, you do Y. If he does C, you do Z. The the, the trouble with that is is it, it's always putting the enemy in charge. It's saying he'll tell you what to do. That's effectively what it's telling you to do. We need techniques to be proactive. 
Uh, so rather than relying on waiting for the enemy to do something, we have techniques that, that we kind of go on the front foot. And then we have techniques for dealing with the ways in which the enemies will try to defend themselves against our techniques. So uh, I always think defensive techniques should be taught after the offensive ones have been mastered, um, generally for kind of self-defense purposes. Uh, so we encourage that. I mean, think when I look at my when we teach blocking from a fighting perspective fight quite early on. But when I think of my bunkai drills, I don't think we're doing a defensive technique for the <laughs> for a long way into them because I, I want these students to get this idea of okay, you haven't been the architect of this violence. You've done everything you could to avoid it. You haven't been able to kind of deescalate. You haven't been able to escape. You haven't been able to preempt. It's all kicked off. In this instance, you shouldn't be waiting for the opponent to do things, you should be on the front foot. So as Jeff Thompson says, you know, it's always better to be the hammer than the anvil. So, um, and the instant you can get away, then you get away. So, um, so for me, I, I don't teach formal bunkai against junzukis or oizukis because I, I, I believe that to be a, uh, a mistake and we'd be better practicing in more realistic ways. Now, and again, just another little tangent to that though. I mean, is it possible that someone could attack you with a junzuki in the street? It's possible, but is it probable? And I would say it's not probable. I would say it's highly, highly unlikely. So, because we often get this, people go, oh yeah, but you know, what if the guy gets you in a heel hook in the street? Suddenly you need to know how to get out heel hooks. Well, it's possible a guy could catch you with a heel hook in the street. It's not probable. And the crime stats bear this out. The crime statistics tell us. What is, is more likely, you know, we can, we can study this stuff, especially in this day and age where, you know, there's got masses and masses of video footages of, of, of violent crime. We can, we can look at it and we can study it. And we're not seeing these formal advanced martial arts moves that, you know, the, the, the kind of not there. So for our bunkai, uh, purposes, that's what we need to be focusing on. For self-defense wise, we need to focus on the situations kind of, um, as is. Okay, so this next one's from uh, Craig Stewart in Australia, came in by email, and he said, uh, Have you ever taught a seminar and felt that some of the participants were unable to put into practice what you were showing them? And if so, how do you explain stroke show them, and what would you do if they still didn't get it? Now, um, so obviously I teach a lot of seminars, and you get people of varying degrees at all of them. It's not unusual to have seventh dans, eighth dans at seminars, right the way down to kind of, you know, white belts and yellow belts at the seminars. So uh, what I, I find uh, generally is you can always teach a version that someone can get a hang of. So if, if I was, if I taught the technique, I'd pitch the technique towards you or I thought the whole group would largely be comfortable with it. And I'm, I'm going around everybody making sure they get it. And you find some people, you know, it's just beyond them for the current skill level. They can't, they can't quite get it to work. Um, what I often do is, okay, this is your version. Here's a simpler version of it for you. Here's something for, for, for you to try. It may not be the full technique. It may not have all the component parts, but you just work on this little bit because then once I've got a little bit down, then you can add in the other elements. So I, I tend to downscale what I ask them to do for, for seeing, you know, how they are. Just pretty much like I do in the class. You know, I've got, if I've got the downgrades, I'll have them drilling certain things. I'll have the yellow belts drilling related, but things relative to their to their level so the answer is generally i just kind of shift it so there's a version that uh, they'll be suitable for because well, the thing that's important to me is when everybody leaves the seminar i want them all to take away something so what the yellow belt takes away and what the fifth dan takes away may be different things so you know but i'm always mindful of making sure that the individual gets um gets something out of it 
Okay, so the next one we've got is uh, Leon von Rensberg from South Africa. And he said, uh, I have a question which I've been battling with. He says, I've done karate for 30-odd years, and lately I've switched over to Krav Maga. I found that the hours and hours of Keon Kata did very little to help me in uh, self-defense. And he put in brackets, you know, wouldn't it be great if karate could go back to the old way? He says, but uh, he says, I have and always will love my karate, but it's a case of horses for courses. Krav Maga gives me the right mental attitude, whereas karate seems to go the tournament way, which um, I, I feel... You know, just wants to collect trophies, etc. See, now, see, and I, I get that. See, this is the point for me. When I, I get a lot of emails where people say, you know, uh, what's the uh, you know best art, or should I study A, or should I study B? It's all down to how it's taught. You know, so in in this case, it would say that Leon's Krav teacher is better when it comes to self defense than his karate teacher was. Um, but what we should have, and, and I find this, you know, I mean, I, I, I mix with Krav Maga people, and what, what we tend to find is when we start talking about function, I as a traditional karateka, and they as, as Krav Maga people, there's not much difference between what we actually end up doing. Um, I often find I have more in common with some Krav and reality-based self-defense people than I have with some other karateka, because what they label as karate isn't the same as mine you know karate now has become a label for a whole host of different activities um which are only generally you know the only thing they share is the name really so for for, for me um I, I don't think you're doing anything wrong there i think you're studying the art that, that's best serving your purpose but i don't think that's that's karate itself that's to, to blame for that because I know plenty of people, and I include myself in that, where if you were training with them, then you would be getting the correct mental attitude, and you would be getting things that were workable and functional. And you'd, it's just a shame that you, you weren't from your, your kind of karate, really. Um, but again, you know, the, the karate competition is what some people want to do. They train specifically for that, and that's absolutely fine. It's good in and of itself. Um, as we've said before, it becomes problematic when they try and pass it off as self-defense. So if you want to learn self-defense, you need to go to a, a school that focuses on um, or includes that element, you know, and, and fully understands what it is. So I, I, I won't name names because that wouldn't be fair because I haven't asked his permission. But uh, I remember chatting with a, a very senior Krav Maga guy and he was telling me that um, he's got a lot of students that have moved over from traditional art, such as, you know, um, karate, taekwondo, that kind of stuff. And he said they make the best students for him. He says because they've got this fundamental uh, awareness of the body, and 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 move very well. So therefore, when you teach them the the combative techniques, that they, they apply them very skillfully. He said he sometimes has problems with some crab guys. He says because they haven't got that that kind of you know they haven't done the key on and the cutter and that haven't maybe got that same degree of, of of body awareness. He says they don't quite reach the same level that the karate guys sometimes do that have moved across. And he said, but if I try and get them to do exercises to develop this body awareness, they're, they're not interested. You know, he says, they, they, you know, in his own words, he said, they just want to rip machine guns off one another. <laughs> right? And then you've got the other extreme where you've got the karate guys where they drill, you know, the Kater and Keon and they develop high levels of body awareness, but they never apply it with it. And, and, and we were in agreement that it was a shame that both arts couldn't do both things generally so you should i think you know as we talked about in the last podcast you know there is a case for keon there's a case for developing that high mind body link but you have to do something with it and if you're not then you know that that's a shame because then effectively you're digging the foundations of a building but never building on those foundations so i think you've done the right thing leon i think i, I think you have um, um i'm sure that your karate will have served you in moving on and it will give you a good foundation to move on 
from, but if the karate school with which you were practicing wasn't giving you what you need, you're right to move to another school, no matter what art it is that, that, that does. Okay, the next one is from uh, 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 Joseph uh, uh, Claramonte, I think I pronounced that, is in, in China, and he said, I'd like to hear about why kata from different styles have the same movements, uh, techniques, and fighting principles uh, behind them, and why people get crazy about the style differences. See, and this, this is, we mentioned this before, this is it, this is it for me. Once the kind of, well, I'll give you an example, right? Let's let's even go beyond karate. Uh, years ago, uh, Peter Considine, who's a, one of my teachers, you know, ninth dan, uh, international bodyguard, um, one of the kind of leading lights of um, uh, reality-based martial arts, and ninth dan in karate, as I've just mentioned. Trained with Peter every week, and uh, um, I did I did a seminar with Peter, and there was myself, uh, Peter Lakin, who's a, another student of Peter's, and a guy called uh, Danny too, who's, and he'd said to us, "Okay, I'm doing this seminar. I want you guys to come along and help me teach." And uh, he said to me, "Can you put a gi on, Ian?" So yeah, I put a gi on. So I turned up in a my karate gi and. Uh, Danny's a Thai boxer, so he was in his Thai boxing gear, and uh, uh, Peter Lakin, for the sake of the exercise, dressed in kind of kickboxing gear. And then Peter got us up and got us to demonstrate various techniques on the pads and everything else. And then he, you know, after we'd done all that, he said, you know, okay, because um, what was the difference? You know, and very quickly everyone went their outfits. <laughs> it was their outfits that made the difference. That's exactly it. He says, you know, once people start moving and hitting these differences between the various styles become uh, far less uh, pronounced. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. And uh, we just talked about, you know, that with the, in reference to the crab as well. It becomes the kind of same stuff done in slightly different ways. Um, Gavin Mulholland on the, my forum years ago, I, mean, I, I, I love this quote. He said, he says, sometimes because the style isn't what we do, it's how we train what we do. And I thought that was a really kind of nice, nice distinction. Ultimately, what we do will be determined by the nature of the situation we're trying to address. So if we're training for self-defense, um, we'll all end up arriving at similar solutions. We may train it a little bit differently. Um, we might train it in a slightly different order, and, and we'll take a different path to the same point, but we'll all ultimately reach the same the same thing. So uh, I, I'm I'm with you there completely. I think that you know that people do obsess about. Well, and again, I'll give this example. Again, won't name names, but I was once present where where three seventh dans and above uh, was Gojiru, Shitoru, and Wadaru were discussing their height that your heel should be off the ground on cat stance. <laughs> and they were arguing about the various merits, you know, whether it should be two centimetres off the ground or a centimetre off. And I thought, this is one of these, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin arguments? This It's ridiculous. Because in application, fights aren't going to be won or lost by how high your heel was off the ground. It's, it's, it's um, these little kind of nuances, uh, as we discussed before, are just the signature methods of the style. And, and, and we shouldn't get obsessed by them. The reason people go, it must be this distance off the ground, is not generally for practice purposes it's for body awareness purposes it's so that you uh, become very aware of your own movement right rather than just having the heel anywhere you know exactly where it is but to say that you know half an inch is better than three quarters of an inch off the ground is, is, is crazy so um, I'm with you there I think people do obsess on these little <laughs> style differences uh, way too much this podcast brought to you by one step sparring one Step Sparring, wasting training time since the 1930s. So this one's from uh, Jim Woodward, who's uh, based in Germany. 
He said, uh, what advice can you give on developing an organized syllabus, incorporating bunkai as the main teaching point? Uh, A while ago, we did a podcast called uh, What a Black Belt Should Be As Ian Sees It. And that kind of covers my kind of uh, syllabus and the the kind of things that are uh, are in it. Um, Bunkai is definitely one of the main elements in my syllabus. I follow the order of the the hians, the pinans. The way it works for my guys is uh, the first first grade, they don't learn any kata. They'll just learn some, you know, some fundamental basics, some fundamental pad drills, gripping skills, that kind of stuff. Um, once they've got, so that's uh, the ninth cue. Once they, once they've passed the ninth cue test, they learn the first half of Pinan Shodan. Oh, for the Shotokan guys, that'll be Hian Nidan. So up to the Nukatai. They then also learn our basic four bunkai drills that go with that. In addition to that, they learn kind of basics, more pad work drills, more sparring drills, a couple of like uh, gripping drills as well. Um, for the next grade on, they then do the whole of the kata, so they've learnt the second half as well, uh, and they do the four bunkai drills for the second half, and that's kind of the way we do it in on the the early days. Is it's it's so it's uh, kata learnt slowly, and they learnt the the bunkai alongside it. Uh, by the time they hit first dan, they will have done bunkai for the five pinan katas and uh, nahanchi. Um, and then, so that's not many, you know what I mean, in, in terms of, you know, you consider that your average black belt will know way more catters than that, but we learn uh, fewer, at that, at that, we'll learn them slower actually, we'll still end up learning them all by the time we get up to kind of fourth Danish, we do about ten, you know, and they've got some optional extra ones as well, but and we'll start slow, concentrate on the quality of the motion, and make sure that uh, every movement is taught with uh, bunkai. So that the students, you know, my, my guys, the ones that have grown up with it, really, they, they, they don't have this notion that kata can be done without bunkai. It just doesn't exist to them because it's always done with it, you know. So, uh, But that's how we do it. Now, if someone was saying, okay, what I'm going to do is I want to start introducing bunkai to the syllabus, the mistake would be is, okay, I'm just going to dive in with both feet and we're going to do, you know, you've got a syllabus that's one way one day and totally different the next day. It just confuses students. So if I was starting from scratch to introduce it, I'd say, okay, I'm going to take a move from each of the forms that we're doing and I'm going to add a little bit of bunkai in for each one. So the students just get an appreciation that bunkai exists and allow them to start practicing it. And then I'd slowly change the syllabus over time. Because those who've ended up with a, a, a really functional syllabuses, when they've moved from a more kind of 3K syllabus, all the guys I know have made a big success of that. have done it very gradually. So they've adjusted the syllabus one year, the students have all worked with it, and they've changed it a little bit more next year. So they end up taking the students with them and don't kind of pull, you know, the rug out from underneath them when they're uh, kind of halfway through that earlier grading uh, grading syllabus. So there's some um, key points, Jim, but if you check out that, uh, what a black belt should be as Ian sees it, that covers what I think a syllabus should uh, should contain um, all the way up to, to Dan Grade, and hopefully that will be, be useful. So the next one's from uh, Chris Marshall. He says, uh, why don't the catters seem to cover multiple attackers? They aren't a modern thing, and, uh, and I would have thought there'd be something recorded uh, in the catters uh, for that. And um, I think the catters do record multiple attackers. But it depends how you view this. Now, for some people, they go, uh, or for multiple opponents, it's like uh, one guy does a kick, and the other does a punch, and I simultaneously block them both. And they would view that as being a technique for multiple attackers. 
Now, now again, how probable is that? How likely is it that two people will attack you with those exact techniques at 180 degrees from one another? It's just, it's, 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 you know, why? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And there's, there's an infinite number of other variables where two shots are thrown at once. And you know, why don't you do blocks at 60 degrees? And all, all, it's, it's strange. The, the other thing with it as well is, you know, blocking one technique in the chaos. You know, if one guy's swinging shots, blocking those techniques is hard. Never mind blocking two techniques um, at once. So this is how I how I think Cutler addresses multiple opponents. It's not doing two techniques at once, you know what I mean? So to one guy and another guy. It's all to do with the positioning. So let, let's take, for example, uh, uh, we'll talk about the angles, right? So the angle in the cutter, according to Mabuni, uh, represents the angle from which you attack the opponent. And, and, and I summarize this for my guys by just, uh, we call it attack lines. So if you imagine a big thick line coming out the center of your chest, uh, that is the line upon which you are most effective. Your eyes are at the front of your head, so you can see what's going on better. All your joints are designed to move in that direction. Um, of course, the same is true for my enemy. So the general rule I want to do is, I want to keep the enemy on my attack line, so be in front of me, while I am not in front of them. So I've kind of moved to the side, moved 45 degrees, got behind them. We see that kind of stuff in Katabunkai all the time, because that's why the angles are there in the kata. Now, that same principle applies if there's more than one guy. So if there's two guys, I want to be off both of their attack lines while keeping them on my attack line. The only way to practice this is through live drills. So my uh, students, we do a lot working on, on multiple opponents. So you practice that, 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 that movement, that getting off those lines, that kind of delivering shots while you do it. And while in those individual moments while you're moving, you'll be applying kata techniques. So the technique hasn't changed. It's just you're extrapolating the tactics for the fact there's now more than, more than one, um, one opponent. Now, and, and, and again, in Karate Do My Way of Life, Gichin Funakoshi talks about how is a youth in Okinawa that try and have one guy take him to the ground. And if he managed, he would do it with two. And if he managed, he would do it with three. And according to Funakoshi, he said, oh, I was always okay with, you know, like two or three. But when it got like four or five, I, I generally found myself upended. So he's, he's doing a pretty good job um, <laughs> even there if, he, if, he's, if he's doing it with two or three. So what we do is we take the principles of the kata, and then just like Funakoshi did, we drill them live. And Funakoshi said, I can think of no better way than this to learn to defend against multiple opponents. You do it live. You, you don't do it in kind of um, set choreographed ways, which is, of course, what a lot of people believe Qatar is, that it's a choreographed fight against multiple opponents. And again, going back to the angles, that's exactly what Mabuni says. He says, the purpose of angles is not well understood, and this has led to some people saying that these cutter, if, or this cutter is for fighting eight people or some other such nonsense. So he writes this idea off as being nonsense. So I would say that they do cover multiple attackers. In, in, in the principles are all there. What you don't see is techniques block, um, like dealing with two techniques at once, because you, you, you're only ever dealing with one individual at that moment. But I might be redirecting that one individual while being aware of where the other one is. And um, that comes through kind of uh, live practice. For, for more details on that side of things, is the Multiple Enemies podcast we did uh, a little while ago as well. And uh, for those who are WCA members, there's a written version of that in the, the membership uh, side of the site as well. Okay, so the next one is from uh, Haney uh, uh, Penderson. Um, and I've got a couple of questions. I go, how do you validate that a given bunkai is in fact workable in practical self-defense? 
And the next question is, uh, how did you come up with the Bunkai? Is it just a knowledge of body mechanics and practical karate that allow you to decipher the moves into workable uh, Bunkai? So in terms of, you know, how do I validate it? Um, again, I talk about this a bit at the, the, the seminars, but I kind of use a quasi-scientific model. So if you think of um, scientific theory, so when we say theory, we tend to think of something that's unproven. You know, people go, it's just a theory. Whereas scientifically, you know, theories of scientific theories are much more robust than that. Uh, a scientific theory, uh, basically, it can explain all the information we have and uh, it can make predictions. So if you take the theory of gravity, so I mean, like I, I always say, you know, you can jump off the roof of a building saying it's just a theory, you're not going to float, you know, <laughs> theories are more robust. And you can say, okay, we're not 100% sure how gravity works, but you know, we, we, but this observation, this theory of gravity explains how it works. And we know that if we uh, drop objects on the planet Earth in a vacuum, they'll drop at 9.81 meters per second per second, right? So we, we can make predictions uh, with it. And then... You know, with gravity, they made predictions that a hammer and a feather should fall at the same speed in a vacuum. And, of course, they try that, and that's exactly what happens. And uh, there's that famous footage of one of the astronauts doing it on the moon as well, dropped a hammer and a, uh, a feather together, and they land at the same time, right? So so when I'm looking at applications, it has to explain all the data. So there can't be bits of the catheter that I ignore. So if the hand is on the hip, that must be explained. If I'm at a given angle, that must be explained. If I'm in a certain stance, that must be explained. If the arm moves one way before it moves another way, then that must be explained. It must explain all the data. And then crucially, it must be able to make predictions, right? So um, it wouldn't be a good application if it missed past the cutter out. So if you think of the common application of shutuki or knife and block, it doesn't explain why you're in cat stance. It doesn't explain why the arm goes back before it goes forwards. It doesn't explain why the, the other hand's held across the chest. None of that's explained. So it's a bad ex explanation. Um, so that's that's the first thing. So it needs to explain all that, and then we say, okay, it needs to be able to make predictions. So it needs to be able to work. So in order to get it to work, we need to understand the uh, what 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 working is. We need to understand the the realities of civilian violence. And then we need to create drills which replicate that reality. You know, it's no, it's no good saying to students, you know, get out in the big bad world and test things on unsuspecting members of the public or hang around dangerous people until it all kicks off, you know. If, if they want experience, we have to create that experience within the dojo for them. That, that's a, a, the sensible thing to do. That's a safe and moral thing to do. And when we do that, we take the lessons of those who, through the course of their employment or misfortune, uh, have came into contact with that kind of violence kind of firsthand. It's a bit like, like how we train soldiers. Soldiers go out in a battle, they feed information back, training programs and tactics and everything else get updated as a, as a result. You know, they don't teach them to fight battles by getting them to fight battles. You know, they simulate it. So how do I know that it's workable or practical? Is um, it, it, it fits. It fits with the reality of conflict. And then we'll test it. You know, we'll do our live cutter-based uh, sparring stuff. In, in terms of, so that's how I validate it. And I always say to, to, it needs to do for me to, for for a bunkai to have you know tick in a box and to say yeah that's a valid bunkai. It needs to not contradict anything the old masters told us about the way bunkai should work. All right. It needs to not contradict the realities of, of application of, of application in real world scenarios. You know the, what real world situations are like. And it also needs to fit the cutter. You know, if you can do those three things, then it's then it's correct. Uh, and in terms of how do I come up with it, um, it's just study. I, I, I have, I have a, a process which I apply. You know, so I'll look at the the stance will tell me how the body weight is shifting. 
the arm position, this two-handed rule. So the non-striking arm will be telling me where he is or it'll be getting limbs out the way. Uh, the angle will be telling me what angle I'm at in relationship to my uh, my opponent. Uh, in kata, we often find, if a technique fails we or can fail, we often find the, the, the following technique, you know, will tell the, you know, what to do if the technique should go wrong. So I, I have these things that I look for, you know, these rules that I apply. And when I apply this process of analysis, I'll then go, okay, okay, this fits the, the kata, it fits what we know about uh, its nature, nothing's left unexplained, and if we test it, we know that it it, 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 it works. So that's kind of like a, a potted summary of, of, of how I'd how I do it, you know. And then trial and error as well, you know, sometimes you know, I'll think, oh yeah, this seems to be right, and I'll give it a go, and think, no, it's not right, because there'll be something I haven't considered, or there'll be a new piece of information that comes in, or something like that. So, And again, for me as well, one other little side thing is, you know, is... Uh, I put it out there. That's the other thing I do. You know, when I think, you know, yeah, this is good stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of, you know, happy with this. This seems to, I'm, I'm onto something. I'm convinced this is it. You know, that's when I'll kind of start sharing it first with my own students. When they're happy with it, I go, okay, you know, let's maybe share it wider on the kind of seminar side of things as well. Once I'm absolutely sure it's down, and of course from there, you know, you get the endorsements. You get your Jeff Thompsons, your Peter Constantines, your Rory Millers, your Mark McYoungs, your Chris Wilders, etc. Looking at what I do and going, yep, that's it. You know, when, so that again to me helps you know what i mean that that's that's the, the kind of approval of my peers is like the kind of final level and of course you know the seminars you know you get people looking at it and go yep like this this works you know I, so that that helps validate it for me as as well so i kind of hope that helps okay the uh, next one's from uh, larry McAllister in the usa and he says i would love to hear your take on stretching uh, what kind do you use static or ballistic and uh, how much time do you spend on it uh, particularly pertaining to the older karateka, like say forty plus. So, that's me. <laughs> I'm forty plus. Um, straight up, hate stretching. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. It's boring. It's boring. You know, I, I enjoy like martial arts training. There's exciting. There's a lot going on. I like push myself on the weight. So like pushing myself, you know, aerobically and anaerobically and those kinds of training, uh, stretching because, you know, it's always measured and stuff like that. And you've, I just, I hate it. I don't like it. It bores me. So, um, but I know I need to do it. Now it wasn't always the case because I started karate when I was really young. So when, you know, you're kind of, a child, you know, flexibility is not an issue. You can just do it. Um, of course, the older you get, the more you need to work at it. So I tend to do some very gentle stretching to warm up. I, I always find that just helps me avoid injury. Uh, just loosens it off. I know there's studies that say it, it doesn't have that effect, but I, can, I know for me, I like to stretch off a little bit before I train. It, it always helps me. Um, and then in terms of like stretching to improve flexibility, well, ballistic stretching to me that would be my kicking. You know, uh, there's no better exercise for kicking than kicking. So when I'm, and I do practice head eye kicking. It's, it's training with, you know, Peter and the gang on Thursday mornings. We'll throw loads of head eye kicks. So during that course, by the nature of kind of throwing those head eye kicks, there's, there's a lot of ballistic stretching, if you like. Uh, static stretching I tend to use when I'm really loose and after hard training, after kind of cardiovascular training, when I'm nice and you know, sweaty and warm. That's a, I find a good time for me to kind of uh, increase my uh, my flexibility through uh, through static stretching. Uh, I gen generally I don't do anything that's uh, too kind of uh, extreme, and typically I'll hold each one for about fifteen odd seconds, um, just to take it to the point where you kind of feel that stretch stretch reflex. Fifteen seconds or so, then release. And I, and I found that uh, that's enough for me. Uh, I remember reading a study a while ago where it said that. Uh, 
that fa- that found no benefit beyond 15 seconds. Whether you, if you held it for a minute, you got the same increase in flexibility as people who did for 15 seconds. Now, whether that's still current or not, I don't know, but I know that's certainly uh, what works for uh, for me. Um, and I also, in addition to those, I because I don't like stretching, uh, but I know I need to do it. I will do very very gentle stretches, like think kind of yoga postures type stretching uh, while watching TV. So if I want to catch up on the day's news or there's an episode of a show I want to do, often I'll say, okay, I'll spend the first 15, 20 minutes of this stretching. One is then it means that, you know, teletime is slightly more healthy and, and it's another way to to sneak my uh, uh, stretching in as, as, um, as well. So I hope that's of some help, uh, Larry. This podcast brought to you by Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts. Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts, the non-functioning alternative to martial arts. Warning, Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts are dependent upon the attacker's susceptibility, gullibility, toe positions, tongue positions, the time of day, uncritical thinking, the power of suggestion and belief in magic. Results may vary if used on anyone other than a static and susceptible junior student. In trials, Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts resulted in many non-responders. Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts are not an alternative to punching someone really hard in the jaw. Please consult your sensei to see if Light Tap Chi-Based Knockouts are for you. If the answer is yes, consider finding another sensei. The next question we have is from uh, Paul Van Schoyok in the USA. And he says he's curious about my thoughts on the interpretations of kata that are more pressure point focused. Um, you know, like Kyushu uh, Jitsu uh, based. And uh, he wants to know what my thoughts are on, on, on that. Well, as you, as you know from my own stuff, uh, that's not the way I go. Uh, my resi- We did a podcast a little while ago, didn't we, called uh, Pressure Points uh, a Skeptical Examination. So... That's kind of it in a little bit uh, more depth, really. But when it kind of comes to interpretation of kata, I, I don't see the evidence for the idea that the kata were somehow fundamentally based solely around striking weak points. It's just not there. Uh, I also have reservations about the fact that during the rough and tumble of conflict, I mean, it is really, really chaotic. Um, so the accurate placement of strikes becomes very difficult especially when we're talking about hitting small areas in a given sequence. It's one thing to do it on a static standing guy. It's another thing entirely to do it on in uh, you know the, the, the heat of battle. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of some reservations I've got there historically and practically. Uh, I also, I, I'm, I'm not a believer in chi as a, a real entity. Uh, as a metaphor for things, uh, that's fine. I kind of get that, you know. But um, as, as a as a real entity, I don't get it. So when people start with a well, you know, hit here, and then if you hit this one, and this metal will kind of cut the wood, and all this stuff, I just don't buy it. It, it, it. I don't believe there's enough kind of solid evidence to support it. And uh, I've never seen anything that can kind of convinces me it's it's some kind of ultimate way of fighting. However. Uh, there are some guys I know who do make use of pressure points, but the ones who do make good use of it will use phrases like, you know, it's the last 5% or it's extra credit or it's the uh, the poison on the tip of your arrow. And, and these are things that kind of reassure me when I hear these. Because what they're saying is, you know, you still need solid martial skills. You still need to be able to move well. You still need to be able to kind of have all those combative skills. And during all of that, 
if you can manage to you know land a blow on a weaker area then um then so much the better you know uh, but however like you say for me when i look at the weaker points i tend to base them on western medicine because I, I know that nerves exist uh, you know i know that there's structures in the body that they exist i know blood vessels exist we don't know that she exists. I, I also feel that um, the uh, Chinese medicine interpretations of why these things are supposed to work just don't hold up. So, you know, the, the classic example, you know, you, you hit a guy on stomach five and he, he falls unconscious, you know. Well, yeah, boxers would call that hitting him on the jaw. You know, I mean, uh, and we know why that works. It sends shockwaves through the inner ear. It's, you know, it talks the, 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 the skull. You know, the brain can bash against the sides. Western medicine can explain why that would cause unconsciousness. There's no magical energy related to my stomach needed to explain that. It's same, you know, people, you know, hit them in stomach nine and people will pass out. Well, again, you know, hit a guy in the carotid sinus, it'll drop his blood pressure and he'll pass out. But again, there's no mystical energy connected to the stomach that, that that's needed to be explained, to, to explain it there. Western medicine, to my mind, does a much better job of explaining it. You know, I'm not totally anti-pressure points. I think you should know where weak areas are. I think you should have an idea of uh, of aiming for them. You should try and make use of them, all the while acknowledging that it can be difficult to do so, and that good body mechanics and good impact will be more useful to you. You don't need to be so accurate if you've got uh, got a lot of power. Uh, when it comes to being the primary method by one by one which you know you would interpret kata i i i, I don't uh, i don't go for that i i think there's uh, far better ways when we look at the you know we see throwing choking locking strangling striking all of that's within there all of that's historically supported uh, a huge overemphasis on chi based meridians and the order with which you hit hit them uh, i don't see that it's it's not historically there i hope that's of some use for you uh, paul the next one we've got is uh, from Kla, my friend from Switzerland. He's asking, he says, um, he says, how do you best invest time for training? Uh, what would be a reasonable training plan for someone who's not a professional martial arts athlete and only has a limited amount of hours for karate practice? It, the, well, that's, you know, I can't really advise for everybody because everybody's going to train differently. But here's something that you, you, you can do, I think. I think people are generally better training little and often. If you try and find uh, two hours during your day to train, that can be hard. If you try and find 20 minutes, two or three times a day, a lot easier. Um, so that's that's one thing to, to kind of try and do, you know. Um, I, I always like training early in the morning. It's nice to get up early and get it get it done. Uh, I also think that one other th thing you can do is what I call micro training. So it's sneaking in little bits of training when you can. So I'll give an example. In the office I'm recording this in, there's a set of dumbbells just near the door. So at various points during the day, I'll grab those dumbbells and I'll do a quick few basic exercises with them. You know, nothing massive. And I'm not, you know pushing for maximum lifts or anything like that i'll just do something uh sometimes when i'm like say i'm okay i'm gonna go to the kitchen and make myself a cup of tea or whatever i'll do a little stretch uh, before i uh, before I, I go down i'll uh, maybe walk through a cat or a technique that's been causing me a, a bit of difficulty a few times that kind of thing so you get these small kind of two or three minute training sessions broken into the day as well they can make a big difference you know, if you if you drop down and do press ups like four or five times a day, it's amazing how that kind of builds up over a period of time as well. Um, in terms of you know what you do in that training, which is what Clara then goes on to ask, is it how would you split it between bunkai sparring, solo kata, impact training, etc.? Um, it just depends, and, and, and I, I, it depends on what you're working on, what areas you're weak on. For my own training, I like to cycle it, so there'll be some times where okay, I'm doing loads of impact work. 
and then there'll be other times where I'll go, okay, now I'm doing more kata now and a little bit less impact work. Or I'll decide that, you know, I want to improve my cardiovascular fitness a bit now, so I'll do a bit more running and rowing than maybe lifting. So I'm always tweaking my training based on uh, what I think I need and also what's interesting me, you know, so that I keep it nice and uh, and fresh. So if it was me, I, I would work out, you know, what, where do you want to be? What areas do you feel weak? And then try and work out how you can sneak these extra bits of uh, training in, in, into the day. And in addition to your regular dojo sessions, I say 20 minutes here and there, um, that all mounts up. You know, So I, I would uh, encourage you to kind of think of that um, micro-training idea. Uh, so the next one, we've got uh, Brian uh, Crichton, who's uh, currently uh, working in uh, Dubai. And he said that in Dubai, jiu-jitsu is part of the school PE curriculum. And he says in India, taekwondo's taught. He says, do you ever think we'll see martial arts taught in all UK schools? Now, it's not taught in all UK schools, but for the uh, GCSE, the General Certificate of Secondary Education, for PE, you can do martial arts for that now in the UK. So I've been involved with quite a few people who've been doing karate uh, for that. And as a result, you know, various school teachers uh, have asked me, you know, can you because they don't know, you know, PE teachers don't know, but they'll ask you, you know, can you look at this person do this? Can you tell me how good they are? And there is a criteria there. So I, I whether it's going to be taught in all UK schools, um, I very much doubt, but we've certainly seen it been, been taught in um, more of them now, and you can it can certainly contribute towards your physical education certificates as well. And uh, Brian also asks, he says, do you think Qatar will ever make the Olympics? Uh, I don't, and to be honest, I hope it doesn't. Um, because what we'll see is in the eyes of the general public then it'll become flamboyant demonstration sports along with um, gymnastics and synchronized swimming or whatever uh, to, I don't I don't want to see that I, I, if I'm honest I have mixed feelings about Kumite being in the Olympics I, I think that those who are competing in karate at that level you know they work so hard and they put in so many hours you know it, it would be nice to see them uh, recognized and be able to get that Olympic medal. Um, however, as someone who doesn't do that type of karate, who sees karate differently, I am concerned that the public image of karate will be conditioned by what they may see in the, the Olympics. Now, you know, there's an old argument, you know, the competition karate will be the kind of shop window, you know, and it'll, you know, the high tide floats all boats and all that kind of stuff. I just don't buy it because that's not the kind of karate I do. And and I would wager it's probably not the kind of karate that most listening to this will do either. Um, so the danger is that people see that and think, well, okay, that's karate. You know, so if they want that, they're not going to find it at my school. And people who maybe want the kind of things that I do at my school will be put off because they think that karate is what they're seeing there, you see. So um, I don't think Qatar ever will. Um, I, I, as for Kumite, you know, whether it'll become a permanent Olympic event, I, I, I don't know. For those that do it, you know, obviously I can see why they want it, and I wouldn't want to deny them that. As for me, I, I think if it did, for the pragmatic side of things, I think it would be more of a problem than a than a help. And, you know, the thought has crossed my mind, if, if the public perception does become of karate does become that we may need to rethink of going back to an older term for karate so that people are aware that there's two different types you know anyway um so next question is from uh dave howard he says uh, at what point does karate stop being japanese karate when it is practiced outside japan by non-japanese people or okinawan karate stop being okinawan he said can i be said to be doing canadian karate and you british karate <laughs> so that's a really good position i i think see karate belongs to everybody now 
you know, it's 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 a worldwide thing. It's it's no longer just the, the sole preserves of the the Japanese, and 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 also in what we tend to think of of Japanese karate, we tend to forget that the old the the do concept, the idea of using uh, physical activity as a means to engender good character, um, they got their inspiration there from the Western education system. Um, so we've had that influence there. If, if you look at uh, the way that modern karate can move, that footwork's not traditional footwork. That footwork's boxing footwork. That's Western boxing. So th th there's no doubt again that the, the West has had a, an influence on on what people would even regard as being being Japanese karate. You see, um, I'm a little bit hesitant to label it by nation because. If you say I'm doing British karate, does that mean I'm doing the same karate as everyone else in Britain? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and I would say I'm probably not, you know, and I would say that's probably the true for you, Dave, when you say about um, Canadian karate. Um, but I will say this, right? So if you think of, if we make a, a very basic view of karate history, so you've got these Chinese systems and others, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's say Chinese. Because Chinese systems go to Okinawa. And the Okinawans don't keep them that way. The Okinawans say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to adapt this Chinese system to the Okinawan culture and I'm going to mix it with indigenous Okinawan methods. And then, of course, what happens is it then goes to Japan and they say, okay, we're going to take this Okinawan art and we're going to kind of make, we're going to, uh, make it fit with the, the martial ethos of the time in Japan. Now, I see no reason for that process to stop. So when that Japanese karate, if you like, hits the British shores, I think it's right that the uh, British people make it their own and the American people and the Canadian people and the French and Italians and everybody else you know what you, what you do is you say okay we'll, we'll make this fit our culture um, so there's little things I find like the bowing at classes is, is something that I personally uh, having spent a little bit of time in Japan I've instantly felt I, I, I don't get this the, the, the bowing is something that I'm replicating but I don't understand because I, I, I'm not from this culture so largely, we we've the kneeling bows in my dojo. We don't really do those now. We do a standing bow, and we often show uh, Western shows of respect, like we'll touch gloves and stuff before we spar. In the Thursday morning training sessions uh, that I have with Peter Constein and Brian Seabright, etc., uh, we train in shorts and t-shirts for that. And the way that we normally show respect at the end of the class or training session is everybody shakes everyone else's hand. So there's still respect shown but in a Western way, which seems more culturally appropriate. So I'm not saying good or bad, I'm just saying it's, um, it's appropriate. So um, my, my own view is I think, I think karate is kind of worldwide, and I, and I, I don't see anything wrong with uh, adapting it to in a way that kind of fits for the culture that you're in. And, and I also don't see anything wrong with allowing uh, native uh, indigenous systems to kind of influence what we do as well. So there's definitely, um, well, in, in, for example, within the, the karate that I teach, there's some influence from uh, Cumberland and Westmoreland wrestling. <laughs> so the indigenous grappling art, is we, we use some of the names for throwers from that art, you see. So um, I hope that helps, Dave. Uh, the next question was from uh, Jesse Enkamp. So, yes, that, that Jesse Enkamp <laughs> of uh, uh, Karate by Jesse. Uh, I like jesse's stuff and his um writing style and we you know we keep in touch via twitter and he was kind enough to send me this uh, question he said uh, what important truth do few people agree with you on regarding karate so i would say it's uh context the need to understand context so within the karate world um we've got 
this is the bit that really upsets people normally from my so we've got what I regard as the most important sentence in the history of karate if you've you know, been to any of my seminars you'll hear me talk about this the second line of Itosu's first uh, precept of his ten precepts is karate is not intended to be used against a single adversary is a method of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian so in short he's saying that you know karate is not for a consensual fight with a single opponent it is for keeping yourself safe when dealing with villains and ruffians so it's for self-defense not for fighting other martial artists right at least the karate of the categories and then you've also got um uh, motobu said a similar thing where he said he said uh, we must understand that the techniques of the kata have their limits and they were never intended to be used against a warrior on a battlefield or an athlete in an arena. And again, when you say this to people, people get upset. You know, so the idea, what are you saying that, you know, karate can't kind of deal with other martial arts and this kind of stuff. That The point is, what people don't get generally well, I think, is the idea of context is so determinate. So if you are dealing with self-defense, then you need to specifically train for that. It is a physical self-defense, and there's a lot more to self-defense than just the physical, by the way, But so that's another big part of it. But when it all kicks off, it is explosive, chaotic, emotional. You know, it's a very different thing from the kind of fighting we see when we agree to fight, when both people agree to fight, a consensual fight or a duel where it's it's generally more ordered it's more cerebral you know what i mean it's very very different so when you point out to people that one solution doesn't kind of move across um to to all the various problems of violence that you can face uh, that they tend to get upset a little bit so karate guys don't like it because they feel I'm, I'm cheapening what they do and, and i'm not i'm saying that the techniques of the kata are not good for fighting another martial artist in a duel um, they are great for dealing with uh, the chaos of civilian conflict. So uh, if, if you want to be able to uh, outfight other martial artists too, you're going to need to expand your skill set a bit, which I mean, I've, I do this. You know, we, we have fighting skills in our dojo, and then we have kind of the self-defense-based skills as well. But I, I would say that, that that's probably it, is this idea that, that context determines all. Um, and again, we did a, a, a podcast on that, you know, context, 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 exclamation marks. <laughs> the, the title may give away how frustrated I can get trying to communicate this point. Because what happens is, so this is the thing, is people don't get it, because if you tell people that uh, what works in one environment won't work well in another, um, if they've only experience of one context, they know you're wrong. They know you're wrong. So if I say that's not a good idea for self-defense, for example, I go, no, you're wrong, it works. It works every time. I go down to the gym, it works. I do it in competition all the time, it works. And, and what they're failing to realize, yes, it works within that context. So what they're doing is they're reinventing violence. They're pretending that criminal violence is something else. So that their pre-existing solution to another problem can also fit this one. You know, And, and, and that's not the way, it, um, uh, the way it should work. But I mean, so that's a really good question, you know. I mean, I maybe have to do a top ten and make that into a podcast itself or something. Because another one is just the idea that um, uh, people often disagree with me about what kata is. You know, we, we can, we can. I, I have long discussions about kata where people go, uh, "You'd never find kata in self-defense. Kata wouldn't work in self-defense," and, and they're right by what they understand kata to be. But I think of kata completely differently. So if you're thinking of it as a choreographed fight against um, people who deliberately attack you with bizarre techniques in turn, well, you're right. 
you know. But let's remember that Mabuni said that was nonsense, you know. If you're thinking of Qatar as being an encapsulation of combative concepts and principles, and that Qatar provides a supplementary form of solo practice, and then we take those uh, techniques and principles and apply them in both uh, live drills uh, and compliant drills in order to develop a, a rounded self-protection skill set, you know, then, then Qatar definitely does work in, in, in self-defense. It just depends on what you mean by, uh, by Qatar. So I even disagree with some people on, on that, you know. And there's no doubt there's some people who get quite upset at what they see as my... Um, Debasement. I've had that level at me of karate as well. You see, by which I don't think I am. You know, I, I think by trying to return karate to its functional roots, I'm fulfilling it. I, I'm still a grand believer in the ethics of karate. I'm still a great believer in in the the, the aesthetics of it. I think you know it, it's nice when it looks looks sweet. I, I, I like the the physicality of it, and 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 I get the kind of do side of it. I value all of that. But um, we can't deny that self defense is what it is, and, and and try and make it you know into something that we wish it was or something that would be easier for us to deal with it is what it is so there's another one again <laughs> but context mainly that would be the first one and then the final one that we've got time for because i'm looking at the time and um, probably start wrapping this up uh was from lawrence kane uh yes and that's the lawrence kane you know of uh has written books with rolly mirror and uh chris wilder of course and uh <laughs> So I like this, all right? So this is so I'm looking through my inbox of my emails, and I'm getting all the questions, and one from Lawrence. Oh, great! You know what's Lawrence going to ask? And Lawrence asks, uh, "What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow?" <laughs> uh, now, Monty Python fans will get that. Everyone else won't get it. And he, you know, he said, no, "I'm sorry, someone had to ask." So obviously, the answer to that question is, "Well, do you, is it an African or a European swallow?" <laughs> <laughs> Again, that only Monty Python um, uh, fans will get, of which I'm a big one, right? But anyway, the answer to the question, thanks to um, a very scientific-looking paper that I found online, was a European swallow uh, will roughly go at 11 metres per second or 24 miles an hour. <laughs> so um, th there's, your, uh, there's your answer, uh, Lawrence. Okay, I think that's probably long enough. You know, I, I, I'm really sorry if we didn't get to your questions because there's loads and loads and loads. And uh, I should do these more often than I do. I think it's probably about a year ago since I last did one of these. Um, so, you know, we'll do a few more of the kind of general ones. I've got some more things I want to um, talk about and do a bit more in depth. But um, uh, very grateful for all kind of questions. And we'll, we'll certainly do... Uh, uh, one of these uh, in the relatively near future. It certainly won't be as long between uh, Q&A ones as it's been for uh, for this one. Well, that just about wraps things up for uh, this month. Uh, just before we go, just one obvious thing, really, but... Uh, you know, when I'm asking for questions, I'm doing so because it stands to reason that the people who listen to the ianabernethy.com podcast must be interested in what Ian Abernethy has to say on things. I, I know that doesn't mean you necessarily agree with everything I say, and, I, and I'm not setting myself up as some kind of ultimate authority on the topics discussed. 
Um, I just hope that you know, in, in asking you for the questions, it's provided for uh, good talking points, and you've you've found the discussion uh, interesting and, and entertaining. So, um, thank you once again for submitting your, your questions for this. Uh, it, of course, in October of this year, as well, this is ten years that these podcasts have been running. You know, ten years. So that, that I mean, that's that's I'm really proud of that. That's great. That's quite an achievement to have been doing these for a decade. And and of course, what makes that work is the fact that people keep listening in and keep supporting them uh, keep telling people about them so you know it's entirely down to the support they've been shown so I, i'm very very grateful to you for uh, for making these podcasts uh, last that long and you know <laughs> i'll be doing another 10 years of them you know so i, I really do I'll, longer <laughs> as long as you love me i really do appreciate all the support anyway and as i always say you know it takes me time to put these podcasts together um, you get to listen to them for free and it's the support of the people who organise the seminars, buy the books, buy the DVDs, you, you're the people that ensure that I've got the, the time and resources to produce these so I, I really do appreciate your, your support via that route as well so, uh, so thanks once again everybody um, I'll see you next month with a, a new podcast and we'll try and plan something special for the, the 10th anniversary one I'll have a think and by all means send me suggestions and uh, yeah, okay, so until next month, stay lucky and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, bye now, bye.